BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Matt? certainly think that he had to have been aware of how he was going to be depicted by the media, by the FBI, by all these other sources. But I think that he may well have been willing to endure these caricatures and so forth because he thought that it was just that important for the manifesto to get out and for people to read it. And yes, I mean, it's going to... In the eyes of most people confirmed the stereotypes that they've been sold about him, but I think he was maybe banking on that 1% of the outside of the 99 who read it and actually saw something of value in the points that he was trying to make. I mean, I've never read the whole thing before, but I mean, the parts that I have read in the past were definitely some compelling arguments in there. It's, and that's where I think that there is so much of this attempt to try to make him look like almost this Jeremiah Johnson type figure, one of those other like 19th century wild men to the point where it's like 
You don't even want to read it because you think it's just going to be the ravings of a loon. You are now listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Welcome to episode 300. I'm your host, Mystic Mark, and on today's episode, Steven Snyder returns for our milestone 300th episode, and I couldn't have picked a better guest for such a monumental episode. Steven, as usual, brings the heat We discuss Ted Kaczynski and his connections that go as deep as Epstein and MKUltra. So buckle up, stay tuned, and thank you for being here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Now enjoy this conversation with Steven Snyder. So yeah, let's get right into it. Steven Snyder, welcome back. This is your second time on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, but you've joined me on my other show, Esoteric America, and you've also joined me for my new podcast, which at this point in time is only available for Patreons. So, Stephen, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. I know the first time we spent the majority of our conversation talking about the Order or the Society of Cincinnatus, and today... I'm looking forward to getting into something that you've actually published a book about, and that is the nexus surrounding Epstein and all these other players in this deep state political world that you are just one of the experts at parsing through. And obviously, for folks who aren't aware, you have The Farm, Mach 2, an excellent podcast of which I've been a guest on and is among many amazing guests, far more qualified than I. And of course, you have your viceupview.blogspot.com where folks can donate, which I hope they do. They could sign up for the Patreon from there, which you have. And I have also participated in some of those episodes. And they can also get the link to the book, which, of course, we'll be discussing today. But first and foremost, Stephen, welcome back to the show. How are you? Doing well, sir. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's, I think our third or fourth podcast since actually meeting in person amongst some other very interesting, unique individuals from the podcast parapolitics research space. So yeah, that was a fun trip. We definitely covered that on one of your Patreon um, Patreon episodes. But yeah, the, before we get into the traveling, because I think that is something that we have talked about in the past, but it's one of the reasons I invited you here. I figured let's get into the Ted Kaczynski Unabomber case because obviously he recently passed away and kind of in a similar fashion, albeit if it's only in a jail cell and potentially dubious suicide, right? It's maybe similar to Epstein. I hope I'm not stretching the boundaries there too far, but yeah, let's get into this. I mean, before this news story broke, had you researched the Unabomber much? Yeah, um, actually a decent amount, not so much for the Epstein book, but for the one that I'm currently working on now. In fact, it's kind of ironic. I just finished um, the first book. It's going to be a trilogy here, actually about two or three days ago, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, I'm not really going to get into 
the Epstein stuff, um, or really, I mean, more specifically related to John Brockman and the Unabomber in the book that I just finished, that'll be more of something for probably the second or the third book. But yeah, you had mentioned the the documentary, The Net, and ironically, that was what had really inspired me um, to get into John Brockman and the Edge Foundation, because originally I wasn't really going to cover any of that in the second book. I just thought that it might be a little bit too much of a digression, but it seemed pretty evident after I watched the net that it was something that really needed to be addressed. And it sort of plays into um, a lot of the ideology that was derived from cybernetics that was so, well, I mean, really, it's the predominant ideology, I would argue, amongst most of the ruling class to this day. But it was so prevalent in terms of being talked about, at least going back into the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And typically, when we think of cybernetics, there's the whole kind of perception of the brand corporation and how it was being used because effectively it's the study of control systems, command and control, how communications is used for these purposes and that kind of thing. And so it was typically associated very closely with the military industrial complex and a lot of our nuclear policy in particular. But beginning in the 60s, you started to see much more of an interest in it um, amongst the quote-unquote counterculture, even though most of these figures, which is never really talked about, but most of them were really libertarians coming out of all of this. But it was really Stuart Brand and that whole milieu that was around um, the whole Earth catalog and then later the well, the first, oh no, it wasn't the first, but it was one of the earliest kind of bulletin boards back in the 1980s and the very early years of the internet when it first really started going. And this was sort of the whole network that John Brockman and um, a lot of these guys were a part of by this point in time. It was really the foundation of cyber culture which again was very closely related to um related to cybernetics it was very heavily influenced by this kind of ideology and this was i think conversely the kind of thing that Kaczynski was just absolutely horrified by seeing what this was doing to society potentially and where it could go in the future in terms of us losing very much our humanity I can't recall now specifically if they had actually, if Kaczynski had actually targeted any of the members kind of associated with this milieu with the bombs, but I do believe if minimum he had possibly quoted or something like that in his manifesto from some of the stuff that these guys were doing. But this was just Stuart Brand. It's not really talked about a lot, but this guy was just so instrumental not to be have a pun here but for rebranding what we would think of as computers because when you go back into the late 60s early 70s there were when you had all these protests against vietnam breaking out on campus a lot of the computer science clubs were very closely targeted because at this point in time all of this kind of research and especially things related to the ARPANET were closely connected to the military industrial complex 
And Brand was really the guy through the whole Earth catalog who what famously went to um, SRI and saw the computer scientists there playing space invaders or something like that. And he glimpsed this glorious future that was coming forward and it wasn't going to be this horrendous dystopian society. It was going to be a bunch of bros sitting around smoking weed and playing space invaders. (laughs) And, um, that put a much more benevolent, let's just say, gloss over what was being done there. And that really kind of cuts to the heart of the books that I'm working on, because, I mean, effectively, this was really a part of a massive counterinsurgency campaign that was being assembled. And I would imagine that Kaczynski, who was a highly intelligent man, was well aware of what was being done there and... Well, and I, oh, go ahead. I even, I mean, I hope I'm not getting ahead of you here, but I believe that Kaczynski was a part of a certain group of 20 that is detailed in this documentary, The Net, and his code name, I don't know if he acknowledged this or not, but was something like Lawful, right? And I don't know, maybe he was somewhat of a rule follower or that type of personality type clearly it was an incredibly smart person but you mentioned he was in this was it off world sort of an off the grid early off the grid type club or outfit of people right this is where some of these people had met initially am i right i believe so if i'm not mistaken and i think that this went back to his time at Harvard, at Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right. And this is where the stuff gets really interesting, which is also mainly aspect of his story that I don't think is really too understood. But one of the things really, in fact, as far as I'm aware, it's the only really direct kind of connection between Epstein and Kaczynski, but it's an interesting one because both of them were gifted kids. So that brings us some interesting possibilities when you start looking at um, Kaczynski's background. Because again, he was at Harvard, and one of the guys that he had trained under was especially interesting. It was a psychiatrist named Henry P. Murray. You don't really hear a lot about. And Murray is important for a couple of reasons. Um, First was his contributions to what we would now think of as personality profiles and predictive modeling. This was really his big thing. He was considered to be one of the absolute um, fathers of these personality profiles that have now become so prevalent. Right. Henry Alexander Murray was at Harvard Psychological Clinic in the School of Arts and Sciences. Yes. Mm. So he's um, an interesting guy. He also had um, quite a big theory or quite a big influence on um, Marino. I can't remember the guy's first name but his last name was spelled m-o-r-e-n-o they were at harvard together they they would have students that would kind of go to each other's classes and stuff like that and i bring this up because this guy marino was one of the dudes who 
Moriano it might have been, but he was one of the guys who was really big in developing like the whole concept of psychodramas effectively. And this is something that Christopher Knowles and I had really looked at when we were getting into some of the stuff with the uh, the role-playing games and things like that with Dungeons and Dragons. Because on the one hand, it seems, especially in the early years, a disproportionate amount of the D&D gamers were people who were involved with some of these gifted programs and so forth. And um, on top of that, it definitely seems like the sort of RPG culture was very much influenced by this concept of psychodrama as a means of um, essentially reorienting personality by having you play like these different roles out and that kind of thing. So it's really interesting as well that um, Kaczynski probably would have been exposed to this kind of stuff while he was at harvard during the early 1950s because once again going back to the whole milieu around Stuart brand the whole earth i mean this is it becomes very centered on the region in san francisco obviously this is also where stuff like the society for the creative anachronisms comes out of um this is another big thing with rpgs there's also a lot of ties to this kind of stuff with possibly the gifted program i mean one guy who helped set up the sca was a guy called walter breen who had run um along with another prominent psychiatrist i can't remember his name now but um he was involved with that program for special kids that jack sarfati was involved in during the early 1950s at columbia university breen of course famously or infamously probably better way to describe it um was laid low during the early 90s when it came out that he was an arch pedophile um including even sexually abusing his own daughter Laura grayland did an excellent account of all this and um oh what is it the dark side of the closet I, gosh that's no that's not the name but um she was his daughter i mean it's fairly easy now to find that book but she has a really good rundown of all this kind of stuff breen was married to marion zimber bradley the author of the mists of avalon which is a really big work on the whole fantasy genre and whatnot breen was also just a big figure in menza and a lot of these other high iq societies and supposedly he was even trying to run at one point in time this sort of quasi breeding program for individuals with high iq i mean it was billed as like kind of a dating service this is like back in the 1950s where single guys could find women with high iqs and that kind of thing but uh um, yeah it was a very strange thing so kaczynski is in harvard he's around murray you have the whole concept of psychodramas and whatever you coming up. And then there's also the whole factor uh, with Timothy Leary as well. I mean, a lot of people also don't realize this, but Murray was actually Timothy Leary's mentor at Harvard. Right. And, uh, the man who had the greatest influence on his career. Well, and not to mention both Timothy Leary and Kaczynski, and I'm sure many of their peers were all 
whether they, I don't know, volunteered or went to one of these parties where people were just dosed by the via the old classic punch bowl, they were all doing LSD. And I believe Ted Kaczynski was administered in a like an experimental setting, not just like a recreational setting. He was actually sat down and made to do LSD over and over again, sort of like a lab rat. I'm not sure if this was at Harvard. What Larry was doing was actually with psilocybin, mm. though they had experimented a bit with LSD too. But I think the experiments that Kaczynski did were actually at Stanford during the early 60s. I'm okay. not entirely sure about that, but I think the ones that he was subjected to were on the West Coast. But yeah, again, it is really interesting that he was present there in that same sort of climate with Leary. And I mean, also, too, you have to kind of step things back further. You have to kind of look at what was going on in this area, going back to the Second World War, because Harvard is what was, or actually, no, excuse me, it was MIT that the Rad Lab, the Radiation Laboratory, was being run out of. And the even more mysterious radio laboratory, which nobody ever talks about, was being run out of Harvard. Um, But the Rad Lab was really where cybernetics as an ideology was kind of birthed. I mean, I believe Norbert Weiner had already been toying with some of these concepts prior to that. But it was during the time that he was working with the Rad Lab during World War II and seeing the sort of um, the integration, if you will, between men and machines that was necessary to pilot planes, to operate radar and all this other kind of stuff. This was really where he started to flesh out this whole concept and started writing about it um, in the aftermath of the Second World War. So there was just, there was a lot of heady stuff like that in this whole region, of course, in the immediate aftermath of the war at MIT, I think it was, that's when they started the the SAGE project, the um, which was really the first time the computers had been used on a massive scale. I can't remember what SAGE stood for off the top of my head. But oh, this- yes. This is up in Baudette, Minnesota. We actually did an episode of Esoteric America talking about this and how they have a facility. They have multiple facilities, I'm sure, in various locations, but one of them happens to be in, in Bonnet, Minnesota. I can actually look that up and see what SAGE stands for because we did, we've covered this before. But yeah, SAGE was, again, all about nuclear policy, basically developing radar for early warning systems to prevent the United States from being wiped out, at least in theory, from first strike by the Soviet Union during this era. But the big, the really essential thing about SAGE, which was out of the Lincoln Laboratory, that was who was housing it. And I'm pretty sure that was at MIT. It was either MIT or Harvard. But what they were doing there in the long run that was so crucial was the use of computers for all of this kind of stuff. I mean, this was really the first time that in the post-war years, especially that you had seen the use of computers and really kind of laid the foundation for what we would think of specifically as the PC, the personal computer as well. Um, J.R.C. Lickwider, who was the major visionary um, behind the ARPANET had started out working with SAGE and MIT. And 
some of the computers actually that, that they didn't end up using on Sage had kind of been the foundation for the early stuff that was being done on ARPANET. And Licklider brought a lot of guys from that whole area to work on it. So it was very much like a direct chain of progression um, to what was happening there to what went on ultimately at SRI that led to the creation of the ARPANET and thus the internet as we kind of know it. Right, right. And that was a semi-automatic ground environment that SAGE stands for, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Um, yeah, fascinating stuff. And now, obviously, we're leagues ahead. I'm sure you're aware after meeting Mike and myself, maybe you've seen Mike Wan's videos on the whole connection with computers and the Susquehanna River, but... It's just odd how this cyber matrix all connects. And then you have Kaczynski who, whether he was put out, so to speak, like this to be made an example of, I think we'll get into that maybe in a moment, but it definitely seems like he was punished for going so far to the other extreme of what they were creating around him at Stanford and Harvard. Well, I mean, I think he almost had a full-down breakdown right. when he started to realize what all was going on with this, these two sort of areas around Cambridge and later in, like, the Bay Area, because this was really the two regions that were at the heart of so much of this stuff. And as I had said before, I mean, just all of this is related ultimately to military matters. I mean, the whole thing with SAGE was basically designed for our nuclear policy. And then you get into the ARP and that, well, this is also designed in relation to nuclear policy on two levels. One is to create a communications network, which is the common explanation given for the ARP and that the the military could use in the event that um, the mainstream communications had been toppled by a nuclear exchange with the Soviets. But on the other hand, it was basically designed as a tool to manage counterinsurgency by compiling and analyzing all of this data that computers were showing the potential to do and use it to run predictive modeling for this was technology. I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but we were already doing this stuff, um, really going back to the Vietnam era. I mean, this is really what was so significant about Phoenix and a lot of the stuff in Vietnam that was related to vacation. Now, that's what they called it. And this was a huge part of it was being run out of um ARPA, as it was known back then. Now it's DARPA, but back then it was ARPA. And it was specifically called Project Agile. And they had this, what was it, the Strategic Hamlets program, effectively, where they were just compiling all of this data on these model villages that they were setting up in Vietnam. They were running it through computers to try to gauge reactions to things that they were doing against the insurgency that was being raged, waged in the country. So, I mean, a lot of this, it was just basically a massive laboratory to experiment with a lot of this stuff. And again, this had really been going on going back to the early 60s, even before American involvement had really formally started there. So... You definitely have to wonder, I mean, how much of this Kaczynski was aware of and if this was really 
fueling his actions because certainly if you could just i mean he strikes me as a guy who could have potentially foreseen where a lot of this was going as we've kind of been subjected to in the 21st century mm. and just this is something that i had kind of gotten at a little bit one um forbidden knowledge news but again when you look at what they were trying to do all the way back in the 60s with data mining with predictive modeling and also with personality profiles which is again why it's really significant this henry a murray guy was a big part of this milieu well you go forward to the 21st century and you have just all of these rashes and spree shooters and things like that. And we try to come up with explanations with it. I mean, mainstream accounts are either because there are too many guns in the public or there aren't enough guns. Mm-hmm. Most people in the alternative media focus on things like antidepressants and that type of stuff, which probably do play a factor. But, you know, especially when you get into the 21st century, when you think of all of the data that has been harvested on people through their social media accounts that was harvested about specifically their medical data from the COVID stuff with the vaccines and all this other stuff and how sophisticated some of these predictive models and personality profiles have become. And if in theory they could accomplish what they were looking at back then to find trigger points for both individuals and people to, or individuals and societies to push them into revolt. You can think of some pretty horrendous possibilities with that when you get into some of this seemingly random violence. We already live in a society with people who are unstable to begin with because of things we just talked about, especially a lot of the drug abuse and depressants. And um, well, now you also are able to do a very accurate personality profile on them that will have a lot of different trigger points that could be used to push them over the edge you got to really wonder about how that plays into some of the tragedies that we are subjected to more and more regularly nowadays yeah and it does seem like kaczynski was used as a well an example of an insane person, right? Where in reality, he wasn't even given a chance to speak. I wasn't alive for this, I don't believe. When did this happen? This trial was in the 90s. 95, yeah. So I was alive, just too young to really register anything like this. But but yeah, wow. I mean, from what I've seen in various clips from news reports at that time and so on, I mean, he's discussed like he's a raving lunatic yet they don't really give him much of a chance to talk he denied any psychiatrist which they tried to get a psychiatrist to go and examine him i'm sure there are reasons why they wanted to have a psychiatrist to make some sort of official decision about him and given his experience with psychiatrists in the past murray and i'm sure others Yeah, he had plenty of reason to be suspicious, skeptical, and paranoid of these psychiatrists. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I mean, once again, I mean, Murray is, if I'm not mistaken, too, I believe Murray had also worked in the OS um, during World War II and had maintained contact 
with the intelligence community. So, yeah, I mean, back in this particular era, too, I mean, this wasn't really the kind of stuff that was kept as much on the down low in some of these circles because there wasn't the same sort of stigma as working with the CIA or the intelligence community during the 50s and 60s. So, yeah, I mean, I think very strongly a guy with Kaczynski's IQ would have almost surely have been aware of, I mean, who was really behind a lot of this kind of stuff and what, I mean, a lot of these psychiatrists and who they were ultimately working for. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as far as the actual bombings, how much of these crimes, as fatal as some of them were, um, there were dozens of victims, plenty of people injured, right? Do you think he was behind every single one of these? Do you think this was a patsy situation where, you know, as people kind of suggest nowadays when these kind of tragedies occur, that, oh, well, this is a patsy, they've been placed in this situation to take the fall. you think that was the situation with Kaczynski? I... I mean, I've never really looked into any of those potential scenarios. So, I mean, I don't feel like I could offer up, I mean, a strong opinion one way or the other. I've never really seen it suggested too extensively that he wasn't behind some of these bombings, or at least most of them. Uh, and... I mean, I certainly could see the rationale from his point of view in terms of um, trying to bring awareness to this kind of stuff. You needed to do something dramatic or, I mean, just otherwise, because you just do like the manifesto or something like that. I mean, this is something that is going to be easy for the media to ignore, but bombing campaigns are a little harder sweep under the rug and especially the almost sort of quasi mythological status that he was able to acquire over the years so it did i think provide like an avenue for him to at least well and but to that point though do you think there's any chance that was manufactured by these same powers that were subjecting him to the various agitations that led him to be so paranoid i mean obviously he was a wasn't just going off the grid because he liked the forest right i mean he was completely agitated with society but do you think that manifesto was all him you think there was any chance that maybe there were powers behind it that said yeah let him write this kind of stuff because now we have someone to make an example of so that more people don't do this because now anyone who even speaks in this realm is akin to a domestic terrorist they're akin to a raving lunatic which by all accounts it seems like he was an incredibly smart person he wasn't uh, insane at all maybe he was subjected to some experiences some psychedelics that caused him to be maybe paranoid but yeah, it does seem like he's kind of used as a victim of mental illness, right? That's the kind of case they make about him. Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely seems like there's been a lot of work done on the public perception of him. Because, yeah, I mean, he's sort of depicted as this stark raving lunatic who went into the wilderness because he lost his mind. And that just really doesn't fit if you've 
read almost anything about him. I mean, the guy was very intelligent. He had a clear-cut purpose for virtually everything that he did, as far as I can tell. So, I mean, I think that there has been a colossal effort to smear him. And it just seems like, in general, to kind of muzzle him, too. I mean, when you look at kind of similar... I mean, obviously, he's generally referred to as a serial killer, even though that's not accurate. But, I mean, when you look at a the access a guy like Charles Manson had to the media in comparison to Kaczynski or some of these other figures. It's really interesting. I don't know to what extent, because he chose to not talk to the media, that would be something else that would be kind of worth looking into or how much of it was because they were trying to create a kind of wall of separation or something to that effect. But Well, I should point out in... um in the book that was published by Farrell House, Technological Slavery, the Collected Writings of Theodore J. Kaczynski, he writes in the foreword and then the introduction or author's notes, he says, um, I want to make it clear I have no control over the cover design of this book and no control over the way it is advertised and promoted. I expect it to be advertised and promoted in ways that I will find offensive. Moreover, I do not like the new title of the book. Nevertheless, I've cooperated in the creation of this new edition and consented to the change of the title because I think it's important to make the book available. And then in more detail, he explains that it's taken him much more time than he wanted to make this book because there were agencies, the United States government, that created unnecessary legal difficulties for him. Um, the United States attorney for the Eastern District of California formally proposed to round up and confiscate the original and every copy of everything I've ever written and turn over all such papers to my alleged victims, in quotes, through a fictitious sale that will allow the victims to acquire all of the papers without having to pay anything for them. Under this plan, the government would even confiscate papers that I've given to libraries, including papers that have been on library shelves for several years. The documents in which the United States Attorney has put forward and then he names the documents that they propose and goes into more detail about troubles he's had dealing with lawyers. And so it seems like he had some control. I don't know. I guess this is from prison that he's writing this, given that the United States government's already involved. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, he had some control over this book. And I imagine if Feral House published it, they weren't exactly <laughs> trying to edit it. I don't, maybe you have different thoughts on Feral House, but they've published all kinds of crazy stuff. This isn't it's kind of mild compared to some of the things I've seen them publish. Yeah, I don't think that they would have backed down from trying to publish it the way that he had written it. And now it had occurred to me, because I can just looking this up, I vaguely remembered the conversations with my dad about this. But yeah, I, I get the sense that it was very important to Kaczynski for people to read this because he had actually offered to cease and desist from terrorism in 1995 on the condition, this was before he had been captured, on the condition that a major publication would issue the manifesto. And I believe the Washington Post ultimately did end up publishing the essay on September 19th, 1995. So, I mean, it definitely, this is sort of kind of getting back to what I was saying. I feel like he saw terrorism almost as a means to an end to draw attention to this. And mm -hmm. I mean, I certainly think that 
he had to have been aware of how he was going to be depicted by the media, by the FBI, by all these other sources. But I think that he may well have been willing to endure these caricatures and so forth because he thought that it was just that important for the manifesto to get out and for people to read it. And yes, I mean, it's going to, in the eyes of most people, confirm the stereotypes that they've been sold about him. But I think he was maybe banking on that 1% of the outside of the 99 who read it and actually saw something of value in the points that he was trying to make. I mean, I've never read the whole thing before, but I mean, the parts that I have read in the past were definitely some compelling arguments in there. Right. It's And that's where I think that there is so much of this attempt to try to make him look like almost this jeremiah johnson type figure one of those other like 19th century wild men to the point where it's like you don't even want to read it because you think it's just going to be the ravings of a loon or something like that well yeah i mean that is the impression that the that's the framing that they did in the media especially when this when he was on trial and all that um they use the word crazy they use the word insane and yeah again I don't know that he even allowed them to ever run any kind of tests like that. I'm sure getting into Harvard and passing all of those tests is proof enough that your mind is functional in some realms. So, yeah, regardless, he certainly, as you said, risen to this mythical kind of status, whether he intended that or not. Clearly, he chose to be a martyr for what he believed in, but... I have heard the argument made or the um, maybe the suspicion raised that he was a figurehead of something that they were, they being the ever-present they, the powers that be orchestrating this influence into the world for their long game. So, yeah, I wonder if having him killed at this time in jail meant anything, if it's at all connected to Epstein, obviously the more famous in the past 10 years person who had died in his cell. I didn't read the details. In fairness, Kaczynski was like 81 years old, so... Right. I mean, I haven't looked too many into the details, but I mean, he, he wasn't a spring chicken, so. Right. Well, and exactly. I But as as he was in imprisoned, he never let up, right? As far as I know, he never um, sort of spoke to anybody about what happened after the trial was over, right? I mean, did do you think there were secrets that he kept with him to the grave yeah i mean it's very interesting and i just was like reading here you know actually that he reportedly committed suicide now that's yeah because i think when originally when i had looked into that they had made it seem like he had died of natural causes so okay that is uh, yeah that's what makes me kind of curious is if it was if it's being framed as a suicide and he's being shut up at this time for some reason or if it if Maybe, yeah, he had some reason to take his own life. Obviously, being in a jail cell as you age, I'm sure, isn't comfortable. So that's one reason. But, but yeah, it is curious that he took his own life. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, again, it's hard to say if it was, again, I don't know if he had some kind of illness or something to that effect. Um, I could definitely see him as the kind of individual if he was terminal with cancer or something like that. But, 
It's a very strange thing. And I mean, yes, I have often wondered why there wasn't more communication from him um, after he was incarcerated. But again, I don't know if that was by choice or what. I mean, it might have been that after the pushback or whatever that you sort of got and how he was kind of framed by the media as this nut job, it might have been, in his estimation, not worth, I mean, trying to continue engaging with them. But yeah, it's certainly one of the more mysterious of these. Um, obviously, he's not necessarily a mass shooter or something to that effect. But I mean, one of these sort of high-end terrorist personalities in the United States. He's, I would say, definitely one of the most enigmatic and the hardest to really pin down as to what exactly his purpose was. Yeah, well, it definitely, in the line of thinking in regards to these false flag events, hoax-type shootings or alleged mass shootings by people who have mental illnesses, it does seem like he is a part of this contiguous chain of events where you know, people with mental illnesses are used as these sort of boogeymen to push forward this agenda, whether it's to restrict guns or etc. We have this pervasive sort of theory that a lot of these events are staged. And yeah, it's, it's definitely in a case like Kaczynski, you wonder his connections to Harvard and these prominent psychologists, if there's something to that. I mean, it just to me feels like, yeah, who knows? I mean, he could have been he could have been under some sort of drug stupor for many years, being pumped up with who knows how much psilocybin in one big dose or however they administered it. And then maybe he finally was lucid in jail. I mean, I'm just hypothetically just sort of speculating here. But yeah, I wonder what kind of secrets or what kind of things they didn't want him saying that never made it out. Yeah, it's interesting, too. He was in Florence, Colorado prison that's right. been used to house some rather notorious individuals over the years, too. Um, yeah, apparently, they were at least claiming that he had befriended Timothy McVeigh uh, when he was in there, which is another curious one in terms of a lot of this different kind of stuff. Well, and a lot of these... Um... Correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of these serial killers either come out of Florence or end up being jailed there. Yeah, it's one of the major, like, maximum security prisons in the country. I can't remember if this is the one, too, where the warden was assassinated a couple of years ago. I'm not entirely sure, but um, it's definitely housed a fair amount of colorful figures over the years, that's for sure. But yeah, the the connection between him and McVeigh is interesting, and the fact that they were theoretically... It's kind of another thing is that they... It's, what I'm reading here, it almost seems like they were allowed to talk to each other and whatnot. Um, yeah, fairly strange considering they're both implicated in domestic terrorism, bombings. They're both used as sort of, again, these, I don't know the correct term, but patsies or just a way of smearing certain far-right movements or uh, just sort of fringe in Kaczynski's case in some ways is kind of a fringe theory. I don't know that 
maybe libertarians subscribe to his uh, manifesto much, but it's definitely not, I mean, it's almost superseding politics in many ways, but you see the environment issue now being used as this political sort of, um, uh uh-oh, watch out, we got, even though the this volcano let out as much CO2 as we've created in the past hundred years is people are still freaking out about climate change being used as this sort of, I don't know, again, the right term, but Kaczynski had a message that certainly doesn't mesh with the powers that be in their agenda and what they're espousing about the world is sort of what we're being brainwashed to follow along with. Yeah, I mean, well, the case of McVeigh, that's a very different situation because McVeigh was very much, I mean, a part of this sort of broader, you know, what I would think of as the American Gladio. Um, it's again why it's sort of interesting that Kaczynski might have gravitated towards this guy. Now, Gladio, wasn't that connected in some ways to like the Freemasonic lodges in Italy? Is that the same? Is the same true? Well, Propaganda Dewey, yeah, but again, Propaganda Dewey was not a normal Masonic lodge, and mm. in point of fact, pretty much all of the figures running Propaganda Dewey were either in Opus Dei and or the Knights of Malta, which is why it's also sort of interesting when you see with the American Gladio, because again, a lot of this was almost probably inadvertently exposed by the FBI with the PatCon investigation back in the late 80s, early 90s, where they had encountered McVeigh and some of these other figures. But again, you saw the same thing with that, but instead of the Knights of Malta, you had sort of the American pseudo-shivering version of that, which was the Orders of St. John. One of those turned up in the investigation along with the Civilian Material Assistance Group and some of these other things. But I mean, in that case, like with the CMA, for instance, um, I just did a show with Ed Berger on this. It's going to be out soon, but half of the founding members were a part of the 20th Special Forces Group which is um, one of the two National Guard Special Forces units. The other one is the 19th, which is based out of near Salt Lake City at Camp Williams. The 20th is in Huntington in Alabama, the uh, same base, actually, where the Nazi paperclip scientists were. Of course. But again, the 20th Special Forces Group, I mean, going all the way back to the 1920s, they're literally working with the Ku Klux Klan, giving it, not making this up. I mean, there was a huge expose done on this in the 90s uh, by one of the papers in Arkansas. They were actually working with the Klan in the 1960s. On the one hand, the Klan was serving as an intelligence network with the 20th in the United States, and they were giving them military training in exchange for this. And the most likely reason for why this done as i got into in the first patriot game episode in the farm which you want to get into more with that berger certainly my book is that this was a part of american gladio and when you look at how this was managed in italy and belgium and all these other places you were basically working with a lot of these far-right militias in the case of the quote-unquote official head of propaganda dewey lucia kelly 
He had been a black shirt during the Second World War, later became an SS man. And in most cases, the Nazis, Roman Catholics, and the Mafia were who they really looked to for these networks. And it was basically the same thing here in the United States, which is why you see the Klan in the 60s working with an elite special operations forces unit. It's why you see a group like the CMA, which is a part of the same sort of far-right militia milieu, working with and basically being set up by the 20th Special Forces Group. Wow. So... It's yeah, absolutely it's, dastardly uh, <laughs> how those spider web connects them all. I mean, you're mentioning the KKK. I've heard you talk about this before on our friend Al Forum Borealis's podcast. This connection, correct me if I'm wrong, is the KKK connected at all to this sort of, um, I guess, neo-confederacy this contingency of confederate forces that chase the lost gold through the late 1800s south well in terms of the original clan possibly with the knights of the golden circle i mean there's a big difference between like sort of the og clan from the civil war era versus um the one that was really sort of created in the teens, which was more modeled on like a quasi-Masonic organization or something to that effect. Um, but yeah, I have definitely wondered about the whole thing with the Knights of the Golden Circle. And I mean, just the whole thing with that is a really bizarre thing. This is a, something that my research partner, Keith Allen Dennis, and I have talked about a lot. But it's just, you almost see this strange a lineage of these underground networks uh, that end up collaborating in some way with U.S. intelligence and the military. And the original one was kind of the Confederate underground. And then after that, it was the white Russian underground in the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution. And then from there, it was the Nazi underground and the kind of broader fascist underground, the black international, if you will. So, yeah, it's and it does seem like at least some of these individuals have claimed there was crossover with some of this. And it gets really kind of crazy in some senses Um, one of the stories that I had heard that came from a member of the Sovereign Order of St. John, who recently passed away. This was a friend of Keith's in Arizona. And he had become the biographer for Mikhail Golanensky, who was a very high-placed Polish intelligence officer who also worked for the KGB, who defected to the United States during the early 1960s. Big source of information in the early years, especially in cleaning up a lot of the Soviet spies in the UK. And then around 63, 64, he did something rather bizarre. He started to claim that he was Alexei Romanov, the early youngest son of the second, and therefore the rightful heir to the throne of Russia. And he tried to set himself up massively within this white Russian network 
He joined the Order of St. John, where they actually became major supporters of his claim of being the heir to the Russian throne. He started making a lot of overtures to the different white Russian monarchist organizations and bids to try to take them over. But it gets even weirder. So according to this guy who was doing this biography with Alexei, he came into contact with Jesse James the Fourth, who supposedly was a descendant of the original Jesse James, part of this whole thing with the Knights of the Golden Circle. And from what this Alexei's biographer claimed, this whole Confederate underground thing was really big within these like right-wing militia networks, still active, Still all these rumors of like gold and from what he claimed, this was the really big aspect of it that nobody ever talked about that was really significant. And I mean, it's really superficially insane, but it was something that I had just started to recently look into actually with J.J. Vance. And there are some very strange connections between the Knights of the Golden Circle and the Society of Cincinnati which ironically also plays into a lot of these. Well, I mean, there were ties to the um, the actual Knights of Malta with the Society of Cincinnati going all the way back to the, the time frame around the American Revolution. But later, there's also these links to the Society of Cincinnati, what became this network of pseudo-orders of St. John by the 1950s. So this was something I actually was just kind of discussing with Richard B. Spence a little bit the last time I had him on the forum. But so, yeah, I don't really know what to make of it. I have been the type of person who would generally dismiss a lot of these claims as being absolutely frivolous and bogus. But after seeing the connections that the Society of Cincinnati had to some of this stuff, um, just based also on some of the things that I was told by this SSOJ guy who was working with Alexi, it definitely seems like at least very much there was an attempt to perpetuate this notion that there were these undergrounds, like this Confederate underground, this white Russian underground, working in conjunction sometimes with this Nazi underground and this Patriot Front, if you will, all the way back in this time frame in the early 1980s. So... I mean, it's nuts, but the more I looked at it, the more I think that it can't totally be discounted. Yeah, it's very strange. There's all these different underground factions that are operating in the United States. You know, you have your 50 states, but then you have a hundred different organizations of, well, snakes and secret outlaws i first encountered this sort of jesse james hidden saga through daniel duke he's an author he's written a book called well, a couple books one of them called secret history of the wild wild west and and also another one jesse james and the lost templar treasure yeah that's a good one i'm glad you brought up jesse james and the lost treasure that was actually one of the certainly one of the more mind-blowing books that i had read recently but 
that's kind of another thing about some of these networks that's fascinating is this reoccurrence of these treasure hunts that you see turn up over and over again in this mythology about the um, the early history of the United States. But in the case of the one that he gets into this, which is really centered around Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, it, it was very striking to me also the sort of overlap that it had with the Beale cipher, the Beale manuscript, I think, which is the, also had the cipher in it, uh, which came out from the, sort of the same area in Virginia, and it was centered around... Um, a variation of the York Rite Masonic Lodges, which is in and of itself also interesting. Of course, Paul Stewart wrote an excellent book about this where he had made some very compelling arguments that this sort of branch of the York Rite that um, were behind the Beale Cyphers, they were largely centered in Virginia and they had broken away from the mainline York Rite Lodges and they were also loyalists. So obviously in Virginia at the time of the Civil War, this made them act like controversial. But he had also suggested that members of the Bavarian Illuminati might have been behind the founding of these specific lodges going back in the day which is really interesting to me on so many levels because within the ciphers, there's also references to the Society of Cincinnati, especially with the use of the name of Robert Morris in it. But also, too, uh, one of the major areas that he had cited where they had one of these York right. Well, there are two areas that are interesting. This one was Colonial Williamsburg itself, so it kind of overlaps with the cipher the Duke is getting into and Jesse James and the Lost Templar. So, I mean, again, you also have this notion that these guys are all operating in the same area. But the other, one of the other towns that he cites as being a big one for the York White Masons was Winchester, Virginia, which is actually the town I was born in. And I now live not very far from. Wow. But it, it gets even weirder because... You cross the border into West Virginia. This would have, of course, been Virginia back then, near Romney. This is where George William Washington lived, who was uh, like a grandnephew or something like that, of General George Washington, almost surely a member of the Society of Cincinnati. And he was more or less like overseeing the Confederate troops in this area during the Civil War. In fact, his daughters were actually working as spies in Winchester, Virginia, for Stonewall Jackson while he was back in Romney, which is about 30 miles or so away, directing with the military efforts. So, again, you know, if you've heard my podcast that I did on the Society of Cincinnati, I kind of suggested that there was bad blood between the Illuminati and these members going back to the French Revolution because there was the whole French wing of the Society of Cincinnati, which... Right. Pretty much entirely comprised of members of the sovereign or what became the sovereign military order of Malta, the official Knights of Malta. And a lot of these guys ended up Knights of Malta figures getting beheaded during the French Revolution, which again, we bred Billington's fire in the minds of men. Very compelling evidence that members of the Illuminati were supporting the French Revolution. It kind of seems like some of the ex-Illuminati had been going after the society members slash Knights of Malta member over there. So 
you just then kind of turn around and you see stuff like this happening in Virginia where you have just these strange like churches that Duke gets into where there's maybe references to these arcane treasure hunts linked to the Knights of the Golden Circle. You've got also potentially that Williamsburg is tied in with the Beale Cipher with these strange York Lodge masons that are potentially tied to the Illuminati. You have the presence of like Society of Cincinnati members in this whole area. You see just the stuff you've been playing out like in the Civil War. And again, I mean to really emphasize, I, I've always approached this as like a parapolitical researcher, like a Peter Dale Scott or somebody like that. I really don't want to find evidence of 100 years Evil feuds between like secret societies and things like that, because this is just really when it gets into this really nutty stuff. But after just so many years of researching this, and especially now, I mean, because I actually live right in the middle of a lot of these sites and having the opportunity to go around and look at a lot of this stuff, it's just, it's not something that I can really discount the way I could a few years ago, to put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly feel that way living around Yale, living in Connecticut for that matter, and just being exposed to a tremendous amount of wealth and privilege and seeing all of it from the inside at some points as a delivery guy getting into the campus and whatnot. And then serendipity had it that these books about skull and bones floated into my life some 10 years ago and just planted these seeds that now have me looking deeper and deeper than I think some people ever have about the subject just trying to find some answers and you just brought up something that I've come across which is this Illuminati connection which often gets dismissed as the big old um, boogeyman and I think there's a lot of truth to it. With Skull and Bones, you have this Ingolstadt College that supposedly housed the first chapter of Skull and Bones. And yeah, I think they're essentially by another name, Illuminati. Well, I mean, I have my own theories about Skull and Bones that hopefully I'll be able to really start unraveling um, now that the book's finished and um the astronosis thing and what have you is all looming. But yeah, I mean, there is, I definitely think that there is something to the whole notion of Illuminati in America specifically, because I do think that you can find some compelling lineages with some of these Masonic lodges and things like that. But there were just, there were a lot of arcane orders that were coming over here. And again, it's something that I would have dismissed, I mean, not even just a couple of years ago, but really, especially just with some of the things in researching Pennsylvania, especially, because that was, I mean, it wasn't the first one, obviously, but I mean, just with all of the strange Rosicrucian sects that you had there from practically the founding of the state, it's just mind-blowing. And, I mean, the stuff is fairly well documented as well. So, I mean, it's not something that can be discounted. But, yeah, with this just sort of vast, almost, I think, to the minds of many of the people who came here, magical territory, you can certainly see why many of these fringe sects were drawn here. You really can. 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, and it feels as this open template to them, this Western power source or these resources for the Western power hierarchy, rather. And with that empire came the opportunity to create a new religion. And that's kind of, I guess, maybe a segue over to what I hope we could talk about in the second half of this conversation, which is traveling around strange America, esoteric America, as I call it on the show. But you and I, we've done a trip. You invited me kindly to join you through a very interesting portion, very small enclave down there in Pennsylvania. We talked about that at length on your Patreon, but as far as anything that's come up since are there any new places that you know have sort of pinged on your radar that you're planning on visiting well i mean i'm always looking for new places but um yeah i mean like the one the place that i'm really obsessed with right now i can't wait to get back there is Asheville, north carolina that was just such a mind-blowing, like, I'm synchronistic trip on so many levels. Um, but I had been there uh, when I was a kid to go to the Biltmore with my parents. The main thing I remember from that was just being so daunted by how huge the place was. Because I was, like, five years old, so I was exhausted from walking around that bloody place. I mean, it's freaking huge. But that was partly inspired by actually going to Noirs and... Um, Wilmington, Delaware, right there at the border with the PA. In that case, it was the DuPont Mansion, which is so loaded with all of this incredible, just esoteric architecture and things like that. And obviously the Biltmore was done by the Vanderbilts, but I suspected that there would be this similar kind of setup with it. And I was definitely not disappointed in that regard. And as is my want, I had also gone there looking for Nazis <laughs> because I knew that it had been a hotbed for back in the 1930s. Again, it's a very interesting place because William Dudley Paley had ended up there. And this, he is just such an incredibly fascinating figure because he played such a big role in crafting, I think, the modern New Age movement as well. Uh, of course, he first gained national prominence towards the late 1920s. He had actually been living in Hollywood, working as a screenwriter. Pretty good friend of Lon Chaney's, the actor, the famous horror star. And he had, I think around 1927, 1928, what we would now think of as a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience. He wrote about it, this short piece called Seven Minutes in Eternity, and this thing became a huge seller. It sold several million copies towards the end of the 1920s. And he started to develop this whole sort of metaphysical system around it. And one of the more interesting aspects is that he brought in the whole concept of being contacted by non-human intelligences and them serious. Again, this is back in 1928 or so, but he almost surely got this from Alice Bailey. Bailey was definitely the first one who was really getting into that. But 
Haley was the one who really popularized this notion back in the late 1920s. And he likely played a significant role in establishing the I Am movement. He was very close to the Ballards, especially Adina Ballard. In fact, um, there was very compelling evidence that she was having an affair with Paley when they were kind of coming up with the whole I Am ideology. And again, I Am is so influential in the modern New Age movement. This is, for instance, where Twin Flames came from it's probably where the whole 11 11 thing was really popularized from mount shasta it was also instrumental in really making that into a new age movement i mean there's so much stuff with i am but um paley was really riding high in all this going into the early 1930s and he heard a speech, I believe, around 1932 or 1933 that convinced him to be the Messiah or something like that. that incarnated on Earth. And that man was Adolf Hitler. And there he set about establishing his own version of the, silver, or the brown shirts, which he called the Silver Shirts or the Silver Legion. And by 1934, he was able to establish a pretty significant paramilitary presence. And it was based out of Asheville, North Carolina. And this is very intriguing. And I didn't realize how intriguing it was until I actually got there, walked around the place. Because this is why I always emphasize that you should do on-the-ground research. Because you'd be amazed at the things you'll notice when you do this kind of stuff. So there were a lot of VIPs living in Asheville besides the Vanderbilts. There's uh, what I like to think of as the three castles there. There's the Biltmore, there's Zealandia, and then there's Surrey's Castle. And they've all got some really interesting history. There's actually some speculation that um, I think it was Ceres Castle where it was believed that FDR was potentially, or not FDR, excuse me, Woodrow Wilson was being kept after he had a debilitating stroke around 1919. Basically, they sent him off down to Asheville where he was kept, and then they had kind of an actor who would come out and wave from the balcony of the White House occasionally to the public while his wife and Colonel House essentially ran the country during this time. I haven't really been able to find much compelling evidence of that. However, um, it also turned out, this is Ceres Castle and um, the Teapot Dome scandal, which was a really big one during the 1920s that implicated the administration of William Harding. And Harding's castle, actually, the cabinet actually did meet in Asheville. And there have been a lot of rumors that there were records stored in Ceres Castle for the Teapot Dome scandal that were very damning, and that was one of the reasons why they hid them there. So it already had this sort of legacy of intrigues. It also had these underground tunnels and stuff that were established in it, the existence of which was confirmed to me. I was there by some reliable sources, just all kinds of other nutty stuff. But anyway... So getting into the little stuff with Paley, right? 
Early 1930s, FDR comes to power, and this is right around the whole time frame that the business plot starts to unfold with Smeetley Butler, they blew the whistle on, and another big guy talked about this was a member of the Vanderbilt family, but he was kind of the black sheep. I can't remember this guy's name off the top of my head, but he was um, fairly aggressive oriented and had given some very strong indications that he had good knowledge of the business plot, which is why um, the whole setup in Asheville was really interesting. Because you got the Biltmore, then you've got the Biltmore Village. And the Biltmore Village is where William Dudley Paley's publishing house the Silver Legion was where a lot of these Silver Shirt characters and what have you hung out. And when I got to Asheville, I was rather struck by the fact that it's literally like two blocks from the gates of the Vander of the Biltmore. And even more interesting is that the train station is right next to where Paley's publishing house was. I don't know if it's still active anymore, but this was the main train station, right, that would have been used to bring people into New York or Washington, D.C. So it's an interesting thing. You have... This full-blown militia, paramilitary force, basically camped out outside the Biltmore, right next to the train station, during the whole era where the business plot was being discussed. You kind of wonder, the signal was given, how long would it have taken those silver shirts to make it up to Washington, D.C.? Well, it wouldn't have been very long. Only been a couple of hours. So that was um, an interesting thing to contemplate while I was standing there looking at the building that used to house Blaze Publishing Empire, which now it's an Indian restaurant. It's right next to the fanciest McDonald's that I've ever seen in my life. Right. Now, when you were recently on the... Um tinfoil hat podcast you mentioned i think the same thing about the i am movement and a lot of people were upset with sam and i wasn't i forgive him for not asking you more about this so i'll take the opportunity and ask you about the i am movement maybe give people a little bit of a one-on-one because as you jotted over this sort of influence they've had on a lot of the new age sort of pseudo beliefs these sort of pseudo truths that people who go to a crystal store or smoke a little bit of weed they start contemplating these ideas and it's very similar to the same crowd that we were talking about earlier, although they were more influential with the whole Star Trek sci-fi sort of Jetsons era idealism. Now it's sort of rebranded for the sort of post-hippies, right, it, to some effect. 
Well, again, there's a lot of, I mean, this is something that I'm going to get into in some of the latter books that I'm getting ready to start working on that are tied into the one I just finished. Um, But yeah, I mean, there was a major point of contact, especially getting into the 60s with this and really the sort of libertarian movement from Robert LeFerve, I believe his name was, who ran the Freedom School out of Colorado. And there were a lot of, I mean, just the whole setup with this was really incredible. Um, I mean, I don't want to get into this too much, but there's at least one very prominent counterculture figure who came out of this. There was another figure, I believe, tied to the process of the final judgment, process towards the final judgment linked into this. But also Robert Koch, the Koch brothers, right? And a lot of the funding here... LeFerve, who was an XIM member, came from the National Association of Manufacturers. In fact, specifically, it came from a lot of the same members of the National Association of Manufacturers who established the John Birch Society. And this is something that a lot of people will think is ridiculous, but actually... It makes a lot of sense when you really understand the counterculture for the 60s, because the counterculture of the first half of the 1960s was totally centered around libertarianism and on Rand and the John Birch Society and a lot of this kind of stuff. And this was where a lot of people who subsequently became big figures in the later 60s counterculture cut their teeth. I'd already alluded to Stuart Brand of the whole Earth catalog. He was one of these people. Another were the Zells, who, or Timothy Zell, I believe, specifically, who set up like the Church of the All World. Again, a text that was huge with a lot of this was Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein, who, again, is also a major figure in libertarian circles, especially things like the moon is a harsh mistress. In fact, Heinlein, in a lot of the fiction that he published in the 60s like stranger and the moon as a harsh mistress was really a major sort of um transition point where you can see what had been this sort of libertarian counterculture in the 60s kind of transform itself into the counterculture of the late 1960s so yeah and the i am movement i think probably did play a more significant role in a lot of this. In fact, I'm not mistaken. I think this is like right around the time that um, the Ballard's son, who are the founders of the movement, I think had actually joined the Church Society and was like active in all of this kind of stuff. But yeah, there's just so many insane things about this. And I am specifically is a movement where it, really seems like it went underground extensively in the late 40s, early 1950s. But it continued to accumulate a lot of property and specifically owns a lot of mines and things like that. And it's really emerged as a major force rather openly in the 21st century. But this is something I've been looking at a lot. And I do think that, especially by the time I book three out, I'll have some very compelling stuff in this. But it had been working underground for a lot of years. 
consolidating some of these um, influences. And again, when you get back to the fact that it did have these ties to William Dudley Paley going all the way back to the 1920s, and I think this was something that I spoke with Sam about when I was on Tinfoil Hat the last time, but there's really compelling evidence that Paley was a part of some kind of intelligence network. I don't know if it was one directly to locate a linked to the United States government, if it was a private one, but just based on his his activities during the Russian Revolution, because he was in Japan, and the YMCA sends him to Russia in the middle of the revolution. I don't get pictures or something like that. He ends up in St. Petersburg, where he's in contact with a representative of International Harvester, which was being used by military and U.S. military intelligence for operations there. And the U.S. ambassador, they give him several million dollars in cash and ask him to transport it literally across the entire freaking country so that the Bolsheviks don't get it. And St. Petersburg is like on the eastern side of Russia. He's got to go all the way back through Siberia and what have you, because they wanted him to take it to Japan. So, yeah, this guy goes through this whole bizarre process like that. And then several years later, he ends up working in Hollywood as a screenwriter. And then, I mean, he has this mystical movement, a moment. He's just instrumental in establishing the modern new age movement he helps set up the im movement and that also was really just it brings up some peculiar possibilities for what was going on in california during this time as well because i am ended up inheriting a lot of these um militant kind of silver shirt figures from paley and at the time los angeles already had a huge new age movement but it was really dominated by the theosophical society which there's very good indications that this was possibly established by the british east india company it continued to have links to british intelligence and it's this huge presence in la and then the i am movement shows up there with um these very intimidating almost paramilitary kind of forces with them and they pretty much drive the british influence out of la in a couple of years and become the predominant group there going in like the 30s early 40s so i mean you're also sort of left with this possibility i mean was there um a bit of strong arming here to try to get the british out of this and just all kinds of peculiarities with that yeah. yeah, there's just so much murky history to that. And there is much more of an overlap, I think, with the kind of groups that we were talking about, as I'm going to get into in these books around the whole Earth catalog and people like Stuart Brand and John Brockman and what have you, and these I am players. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, it seems like part and parcel to the career. We have figures like John D., Alistair Crowley, all partaking in espionage simultaneously mysticism rasputin even i believe was doing some sort of political 
political actions for what was it the czars at that time so yeah historically this is a theme that these folks in america i mean i'm not sure if you've come across this book yet but if i'm the first to introduce it to you well you definitely ought to buy it it's called american metaphysical religion and it's by ronnie pontiac and it's a great book about the sort of uh, layered history of the United States and all of the sort of cults and pseudo religions, side religions, etc., that have gone on in America. It's a great book. I've had him on the show twice, but uh, but yeah, it's maybe surprising to folks who are under the presumption that we're living in a Christian nation that all of these sort of ancillary religions have actually flourished here in the United States. And yeah, I wonder if there's, again, given the players involved in some of these movements, if there's an agenda overall for supplanting maybe the traditional religions for these new ones. Well, again, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think there's always been this sort of almost utopian drift here in the United States or an attempt to remake things. But I mean, I do feel like that there were the the sort of different currents. Um, because I mean, you look at a place like Asheville, I mean, you get a lot of what I would think of as this sort of high ritualism that comes from a family, the Vanderbergs, for instance, or Vanderbilt's, excuse me, setting up shop there. And of course, like the um, the DuPonts, the, um, they're coming from more sort of arcane belief systems. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, too, I believe the Vanderbilts were actually the ones who were part of the Moravian uh, Church. If I believe, if I remember correctly, they were the ones that had the um, well, the Staten Island whole setup with that. So, um, just look that up. I get that confused sometimes with the DuPonts, but I believe the DuPonts have their own sort of weird thing. I would not be surprised if the Vanderbilts were in Staten Island. Yeah, the Staten Island. Yeah, yeah, the Moravian Cemetery, which is where they have the family mausoleum. Okay, so yes. And again, okay, so the Moravian Church is just absolutely... I mean, insane. It's been around, I mean, in fact, it actually predated the Protestant movement, ironically. But yeah, it's it was linked to the early Rosicrucian movement going into the middle of the 18th century. There's definitely some very compelling indications that they were possibly doing some kind of quasi- tantric like sex magic within the church because they had several figures who were senior members in the british east india company who were actually among some of the first europeans to even write about tantra and hindu culture and the practices associated with it so they were certainly aware of it they had their own sort of peculiar um mental exercises for instance where they would sort of contemplate the side hole of jesus with a spear and pierced him the whole sort of notion of the the love fest the agape lodge i mean all of that really came out of the moravian church 
So, yeah, this is something that the Vanderbilts have been connected to, which is why it's not really surprising when you see this sort of like high ritualism in a place like that. Um, but then conversely, you look at another one of my favorite places to visit, which is Somerset, Kentucky. And there were four families who were really big in setting this up. And of course, Daniel Dutton, the great musician and painter who's based out of Somerset, his family were one of the ones who had helped set it up, the Duttons. But based on what we were able to kind of track with their background, they again came out of probably the whole area with the Pennsylvania Dutch. So it was, again, you're kind of faced with this situation with this town where there have been these long-standing rumors that the families were involved in some kind of witchcraft who had set it up, but it was surely powwow, this sort of folk magic that came out of the Pennsylvania Dutch that had probably been transported there. So, I mean, I do think that you know, when you look at a lot of the spiritual traditions in the country, there was actually a lot of different ones that were at play. And as always, there's always, I think, this divide between this sort of high elite religion versus these folk traditions. I mean, that's something that really within the Catholic Church, for instance, in the Middle Ages, I mean, especially in this era, it would have been very evident. Um, you had the sort of high Catholicism, the really rigid form that would have been predominant in the cities and primarily amongst the aristocracy. And then you really had the sort of folk Catholicism that prevailed in the countryside, which, I mean, in a lot of cases, really just took the festivals, the traditions of the pagan world and put a bit of a Catholic gloss over it. But this is what the monks and the friars ran so I think there's always been these sort of differences with that. And I think very much kind of turned up in the United States because you had so many of these different traditions that came over here and were it played for this. And um, that's what I think you sort of do end up with these very peculiar undercurrents with an American spirituality. I mean, really, if you want to get down to it, if there was... <laughs> An attempt, I think, for a new religion here, we're already living in it, and that was secularism or scientism, if you will, which has really become the prevalent worldview within the Western world, at least for the last 50 years or so. And it's been really the predominant ideology, I would say, in the, among the elites for much longer than that. But, um, yeah, about this argument would probably done more damage, I'd say, in the long run than um, some of the more esoteric traditions of spirituality in the country in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah, well, and then unfortunately, a lot of the influences from the American people, the original American people themselves and Native Americans, a lot of that has not been appreciated fully and how they were influential not only in some of the aspects of our government but a lot of the spiritual traditions and certain movements that kind of took i don't know inspiration to use that word twice from essentially people that have been living here for possibly thousands of years but as i've been learning there's 
evidence that uh, certain Native American tribes may have been Europeans who had come here prior to Columbus. There's other thought that some of these Native American groups had interacted with pre-Columbian Europeans and even pre-Columbian Africans and different authors that I've interviewed recently have talked about even an Asian influence here in the United States. And you start to realize it's not just the spiritual melting pot in many ways, but this cultural melting pot. And when you look at the just dry and, I don't know, nutrient deficient narrative that we're given of our history, it's just, it's sad in comparison to what I think we're finding in these alternative realms of research, right? I mean, I'm sure much of that has to do with these same types we're discussing today who want to give us this homogenous kind of controlled version of education and keep us away from understanding these fringe areas of truth. Well, I mean, that sort of is what ultimately, I mean, I think begs the question if you are looking for some kind of like overriding influence in a lot of this, but it kind of cuts into what I'm going to do with strange react or excuse me, astronosis here coming up. And really that's just to explore the whole concept of how potentially we're being guided by non-human intelligences, which again, I mean, this is a really far out subject, but specifically um it seems like a lot of this has really been at the forefront especially of the emergence of scientism because it seems like specifically as i sort of pinpoint a lot of this it's really coincided a lot with the industrial revolution and then increasingly getting into the sort of computer revolution or information revolution whatever you want to call it that broke out kind of beginning into the 60s, but really went into overdrive going into the 70s with the rise of the ARPANET. But when you look at just the sort of lineage that I'm hinting at here, really the major engine of the Industrial Revolution, the part of it was in a lot of ways the United Kingdom or whatever it was called back in the British Empire, whatever you want to go with. And again, this the rise of it roughly coincides with John D with the messages that were coming with a lot of this stuff. When you get into the contemporary era, you really had the onset of the modern new age movement. And really, again, a tremendous amount of communications that were supposedly coming through during this time. And as I'm going to get into with strange realities, I think a lot of this really hit an apex around 1974 and there were a lot of significant things that came out in that year but um i think specifically one of the big ones was the publication of yuri the biography of yuri geller that adrian Chuharik wrote because this was really the first time the public at large had been made aware of the nine and what we didn't really realize it at the time that the sort of concept of the nine was in and of itself a lot of ways kind of groundbreaking, right? 
because it's this notion of this spaceship that's housing this disembodied intelligence in a computer. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a precursor to what we would now think of as AI. And it gets even sort of weirder when you look at the later writings of something like the Cybernetic Cultural Research Unit and Nick Land, where he has this whole obsession that capitalism was created by an artificial intelligence from the future um, to create itself. The nine were supposedly also these interdimensional entities that existed outside of time and space and kind of getting back to what i was saying about john d the industrial revolution well can't help but wonder if this was possibly a theory that land was toying with as well but that starts to be revealed and you have some of the other things that are coming out specifically from some of the um the thelmanites especially those who were connected to kenneth grant and also a certain science fiction author that has subsequently had an enormous influence on popular culture. And a lot of this ended up playing into these notions of the nososphere, of Gaian consciousness, of cosmic consciousness, and that we were in this evolutionary step, and that these computers were going to be the final component to this it was the the exoskeleton or whatever you will the noosphere was finally being built right and we were going to transform into these non-corporal beings through all of this the kind of great promise that so many science fiction works have had in it especially star trek babylon 5 a lot of these other things right yeah but, but what has actually happened with all of this Look at where we're at in 2023. We've had just staggering amounts of people die in the last couple of years through COVID, through the vaccine, through effects from the lockdown, such as skyrocketing drug addiction and suicide, which was already on the rise even before that. We've got a war in Ukraine where there are already hundreds of thousands of russians and ukrainians and probably a bunch of other nations are not aware of men in their prime probably a lot of women too in their prime childbearing years they're dead now right and this is all being driven by a lot of these technological advances that have given us the ability to do this and this was in some very dark importance, which I'm very much looking forward to unpacking more at Astronosis for everyone. Yeah, well, well put together there. Please tell the folks, if it's not too late already, if it's not sold out, how they can connect with you there. Is that, uh, that's in Mexico, right? No, it's not going to be in Mexico this year. It's actually going to be right here at home. It's not in Chicago. Actually, ironically, we're, um, going to be having it at the Theosophical Society's headquarters, just a little outside of Chicago. So, yeah, I'm really going to be interested to see how they respond to this. Um, but we will see. Is this like a sort of Mason Hall scenario where they just let people rent out their space, or is are they connected to the event? They're going to have some speakers there, if I remember correctly. I, this would be Miguel would be or Ivan would be the ones you would want to ask about mm. this. I'm just showing up to speak. They told me where it's going to be, where my hotels are, and I was like, groovy. <laughs> but I did think that it was quite ironic that it was going to end up being at the Theosophical Society there. But 
Yeah, it's going to be June 23rd, 24th. There are still tickets available both for in-person and online. We're going to be doing both. So if you can't make it there in person, there's always going to be the stream that's available. And I'll send the links on here to Mark. So if you would, wouldn't mind kindly posting those. Of course, yeah. yeah it's, it's going to be gnarly. Chris Knowles is going to be there. Also, Mitch Horowitz is going to be there. Uh, James True, just it's going to be a lot of fantastic speakers, and it's going to be all about the Archons. What are the Archons telling us in 2023? And you're getting a bit of a preview of my take, what the Archons are saying to us, and it's not necessarily something that we should be listening to. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Jeez. Yeah, it's interesting. I was recently reading a book by Jason Horsley called Kubrickon, and he gets into a lot of this stuff and how Kubrick, Kubrick was maybe another kin to Arthur C. Clarke. Obviously, they worked together, um, but in kind of promoting this sci-fi, scientism, new religion that I think definitely has some links, ironically, if anything, to the Theosophical Society, right? I mean, a lot of these occult ideas this is something chris and i talked about last time he was here on the show you know how all of these kind of pulp fiction sci-fi ideas were just laced with cultism and esoteric thought yeah i mean i definitely think the theosophical society was a big role in it but i mean also to russia crucianism i mean i think if you kind of go further back as well i mean really in a way the manifestos could actually be seen as some of the earliest kind of fantasy works um and also too it's not really mentioned a lot but the Fordian society i actually think probably deserves a lot more credit especially some of the early influences on like weird fiction with even had a predate the society with charles ford's writings um but yeah man i mean there's definitely that kind of thread with that and a lot of this does ultimately overlap um but yeah there's definitely some very interesting things with Kubrick I definitely would think though that I took a very different view of Kubrick than Jason did I haven't had a chance to read his his book yet but I know he did use some of actually yeah, kind of fitting I suppose that my one book will be coming out here in hopefully the fall because I think um most of the material that I had passed on to him I think he ended up citing a little bit of it. So some of that uh, in Kubrickon was potentially related to some of the stuff that I was going to explore in my own book that's coming out. But um, yeah, it's very fascinating with that whole milieu because, again, it also sort of ties in with some of the guys we've been talking about with John Brockman and um, Stuart Brand and also just all this insane stuff with his predictive modeling and profiling I mean, that was, to me, such a big revelation in watching 2001 and realizing that was really what Kubrick was getting at with the HAL computer. Because essentially, if you go back and watch it, they kind of reveal that HAL knew the entire mission or knew about the, what the actual mission was the entire time. So there's that whole sequence where he's asking the astronaut, what do you think about the mission? And have you heard anything about it? It's There's no reason for him to do this. He already knows everything about it. And after doing all this research for my book and rewatching the film, I was like, okay, well, 
what he's actually doing is a personality profile of this guy to basically assess whether or not he's going to be up to fulfilling what they need to do. Hal decided that they weren't up to the task. And he acted according to his programming on that. And this is exactly the kind of stuff that I was kind of getting at earlier with Timothy Leary's mentor, H.R. Murray. This is why it's so significant that you have a guy like this that was at the forefront of personality modeling involved in these universities in this area where they're doing all this stuff with Sage over at MIT. And then later you have all this stuff coming together with Licklider, who actually also, if I remember correctly, had a degree in psychology as well as um, engineering or something like that. But him working on the ARPANET, when I mean it basically being designed as this way to harvest and analyze data for these predictive models. This is all very closely related together. And I mean, I think Kubrick did such a great job of, of showing the dark side of where this was leading with 2001 and that particular sequence there. Um, to me is why, I mean, I very much see that along with Dr. Strange's love and um, Clockwork Orange is sort of being a part of a trilogy that is really exploring the different aspects of how society, the tools that were being built essentially to control and mold society. Hmm. And again, this is something that I'm really getting into heavily in the books that I'm working on, the first of which will be out hopefully by the fall. But I mean, that one specifically is really going to get into the full scale of a lot of this stuff, right? Because I mean, obviously stuff like MK Ultra was related to this, but that was just really a small aspect of it. Hmm. And just in general with the CIA, I mean, it's role in it has just been so overstated in comparison to what the military was doing. Because I mean, besides also having artichoke, it's doing all these other programs through ARPA that was related to this kind of stuff, like Cambridge and Camelot. It's just this colossal effort that was playing out in the aftermath of World War II, where they were just looking at every potential avenue for how society and individuals could be programmed, essentially predicted their movements and active actions and so forth. You know, so a lot of this in terms of how with Dr. Strangelove psychological warfare was being used with that. 2001, how computers and drugs were being used with that. And with Clockwork Orange, again, specifically how drugs and you know, stress and things like that were being used for it. It's also relevant now that we're kind of seeing endgame of a lot of this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And that's what cybernetics has always been about. It's been about mapping the mind. And now we have these phones that are so efficient at collecting our every bit and data bite of behavioral information. And I do want to highlight that there is hope for the Kubrick fans. Stay tuned for Steven's book because, geez, Jason did not fare kindly to the Kubrick fan, especially if they read his book, Kubrick. I mean, in the conversation he was 
He's polite, but definitely not for the Kubrick fan unless you have an open mind, which I think with these sorts of characters, they deserve plenty of skepticism, especially considering how acclaimed he is by critics. He's just sort of number one by leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of other directors who have comparably equal success, if not more success. Well, there is. It's a complex thing with Kubrick because, I mean, don't get me wrong, he was definitely being used by a wing of the establishment, right? Because, I mean, there's so much stuff that was being leaked out about these very classified projects and his works. And specifically, this really ties into his ties with um, Kirk Douglas. Because Kirk Douglas and also Michael Douglas, for that matter, have been just such a big part of some of these Hollywood circles that have been very politically active now, really for decades. And again, this is something that I'm going to get into in the forthcoming books a lot. But yeah, there's a lot of really strange overlap with this. And you effectively have these different wings of psychological warfare. And again, it would be on the one hand, like what I would sort of think of as sort of the high psychological warfare, which a guy like Kubrick was like engaged with, which was very closely tied to the neoliberal order, if you will. And then on the other side, you had the conservative establishment and sort of what I would think of as like the low psychological warfare and they're operating through things like the John Birch Society and the broader quote-unquote patriot movement and a lot of this kind of stuff, which eventually sort of led to, I know a lot of people are probably going to be pissed off with this, but a lot of what you would think of as sort of the alternative media or something. But I mean, again, so much of this stuff going all the way back was very much the creation of the military in a lot of senses and it's just it's a very peculiar peculiar thing because on top of all of that you see a lot of figures uh, like edward lansdale for instance who show up in so much of these different activities in both of these different circles right so it's very peculiar but narratives are such a big part of how these power circles view things because again it's, it's crucial to shaping public perception that tells human beings we make sense of the world if you will so there are these different power struggles for control of these narratives that are going on with a lot of this stuff and this is something that i very much am like looking forward for the book coming out because you can kind of see this and things like the Kennedy assassination, I mean, even looking beyond who was behind it or who was responsible for it, there was very much a struggle for the narrative over it and the immediate aftermath between the conventional one that was being put out by the neoliberal order, which was that Oswald was a lone gunman nut. And then there was the second tier one, which was being pushed by the John Birch Society and by default, a lot of elements in the military that was that he was a communist agent. And if that becomes a prevalent narrative, something that a lot of people start to believe, it's going to demand a response, right? And 
especially in this particular era coming off of the Cuban Missile Crisis and whatnot, that that might have been a response that could have led to the end of humanity. See, yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, um, Oswald, from what I've read in from one account, was in Russia for what he considered patriotic reasons. I, I think he claimed to want to serve his country being the United States, and one of the ways he thought he would do that would be by becoming a spy and learning how to speak Russian, and he was really good at it. And that's part of the reason why he made a great patsy, I imagine. But that's a topic for an entirely different conversation. We're coming up upon the top of the second hour here, Steve. And I don't want to keep you all night, but I do want to have you back on maybe after you return from the Astronosis Conference and get into some of these ideas further. And if you're on the Patreon, send in questions for Stephen and I'll ask them in the next episode. We might do that one as a Patreon exclusive. But uh, any final thoughts, anything you want to mention before we wrap up here? Oh, yeah, it's actually kind of a good note here to end on Oswald because that's something, too, I'm going to briefly get into with the astrognosis thing. And it goes back to what I was getting at before because um, in the case of Oswald, there is the now kind of semi-legendary connection that he had with the Nine that Peter Lavenda got into in the First Sinister Forces book. The couple that Oswald and his wife Maria were staying with, which who Maria was with at the time of the assassination, with Payne's, Michael and um, Ruth Hyde Payne. And Michael was, I believe he was the biological son of Ruth Forbes Payne, who was married to Arthur Young. Arthur Young was a very close associate of Katrina Puharic, and both he and Ruth Forbes Payne had been present at the seance that changed the world. That was the second one where Puharic channeled the nine, along with the DuPont, a member of the DuPont family, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, and a lot of these other Yankee blue blood families like the Astors, right? So the nine will be getting into at my conference, and they are there at this pivotal geopolitical event but and this is not something that is super well known they also turn up in watergate very closely related to a major figure in the watergate scandal and that is significant because these are two instrumental geopolitical events that fundamentally transform formed the country on so many levels, right? So again, you see the presence of the nine in both of these. And this is where, again, to what I was alluding to before, you ultimately have to step back and wonder when all was said and done, is there something else that's guiding us or maybe more accurately forcing us towards some kind of ending, one that's maybe not in our best interests? Right. Well, hey, that's sort of what Horsley was suggesting. And to your point earlier, it involves non-corporeal beings taking over the transhumanist volunteers who offer themselves over to this, yeah, cyber force, whatever it is that incarnates itself through AI and what have you. But I hope I'm not stepping on anything you're going to cover because folks, please go and tune in. 
to the Farm Mach 2. And of course, if you can make it out to the Astronosis Conference put together by the good folks over at Aeon Byte. We've talked to Miguel Connor before. I've been a guest on that show, and he's joined us twice here before. Stephen making his second official appearance on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, brother. It's such a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to call you a friend, and I look forward to the next time we can meet up in person. Not at Astronosis is a little too far for me at this point in time, but uh, yeah, keep me in touch, I, especially if you're coming up towards the Northeast. Oh, yeah. Actually, I'm going to be in Boston around the end of August. So, yeah, uh, we'll definitely right have on. to plan on something around then. Wonderful. Go up to Boston, get some lobster. Right on. All right. Well, no more bad accents. We will close this one out. And uh, thank you so much again, Recluse. Check out the links in the description, folks, to follow up with our guests here. And until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. Episode 300. Wow. Episode 300, and we couldn't have gotten this far without the lovely listeners, all of you beautiful people who tune in each week and support this show. The show has never uh, been better. It's never been uh, listened to as much as it is now. I was reaching for the right word there. It escaped me. And rightly so, because I just want to say thanks. That's all I'm trying to do. We don't need to pat ourselves on the back. You guys know how well do- the show is doing. You're recommending it to your friends. You're talking about it with your family who may or may not think you're crazy. I even have an uncle and uh, niece who are signed up for the Patreon. So look at that. And you can actually listen to this guy, Dr. Birdwell, um, on the podcast. He'll be joining me very soon for another episode, but... We have a very special episode that him and I did on the Patreon. It's available for supporters only. So go and check that out if you want to hear more about Dr. Birdwell's discovery, the unit simulacrum. That, of course, is available for our Patreon supporters. I might upload it to Substack or Rockfin or sh- not quite sure yet what we're going to do. All I do know is that I will be recording another episode with Dr. Birdwell because it was very interesting and there was a few hiccups. So we'd like to not have a do-over per se, but maybe uh, go more in-depth. So look forward to that. And of course, thank you for everybody who is already supporting the Patreon, the Substack, the Rockfin, or supporting us on Ko-Fi. Thank you. I appreciate you. If you aren't already supporting, well... What are you waiting for? Sign up today for as low as $5. If you sign up to the $8 tier on Patreon, I will sign you up to the Substack as well. Just remind me if I forget, you should have an email from Substack, courtesy of yours truly. Of course, Rockfin is the best place to get all of the video episodes if you're into that. And it's not just us. It's like the Netflix of alternative podcasting. So go and check out Rockfin if you're hearing about it for the first time. And if you're not yet there yet, because you just heard us talk about Rockfin and you just, for whatever reason, are too stubborn, give it a try. They're free 
episodes there. You don't even have to sign up. Uh, you can watch videos on Rockfin for free. So go and check that out. Now, this is the 300th episode. And we are talking about something that is kind of timely. Uh, given that Ted K passed away, you may or may not have seen me on the uh, episode of Tinfoil Hat where we discussed this exact thing. So I don't remember. I think this actually, this conversation took place the same day as that conversation with Sam. So a lot of what Steven told me was fresh in my mind. I apologize if you heard that one first and now you're hearing some stuff again. Uh, But I'm only as good as my research and I'm only as good as my guests in a lot of cases because most of my research now comes from the guests whether it's the pre-show work I do to prepare or the uh, conversation itself I do love to learn from my guests and Steven is chock full of information he's a great guy he's someone I've met in person and uh, I am happy to have him on the show anytime he'd like to come on As a matter of fact, I'm planning on asking him to come back on uh, very soon to get into some of the stuff that we weren't able to talk about on this episode. So, and uh, yeah, I want to give a big shout out to some of our donors, some people that supported the show in the past few days with some very kind, generous donations. You should join them and you will get a shout out. All you have to do is support us with a one-time donation or reoccurring donation on Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, or you can send cryptocurrency of your choice. Just reach out to me so so I can send you the right address. Um, So shout out to Kelsey, who donated $100. Thank you so much, Kelsey. I think that was via Venmo. Uh, Another shout out to Andrew, who supported us with certain amount of money that i forgot 33 dollars uh shout out to ladybug line and shout out to john who both supported the show wow i really appreciate that hundred dollars that made my day and uh and then it just kept rolling in the momentum was flowing maybe the the instagram post helped but anytime you listen to the show and you feel particularly moved uh send us a tip You know, I put hours and hours of effort and time into each episode, uh, whether it's planning, conducting, editing, producing the episode. It takes hours. I would like to be compensated for that time. It's work. And if you find value in the show, send some value back my way. Speaking of value, uh, a valuable item that every stoner, smoker, or toker should own is a sponsor of this show. Yes, that's right. The Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit, as I say, is you got your lighter, you got your blunt, you got your joint, whatever you're smoking on right there, safe and sound in your Hit Kit. They've even got this awesome tube tube dispenser that was sent to me. And, uh, yeah, if you're in business selling pre-rolls, you need this. You just pull the lever, the dube tube pops up, there it is. Smoke away, it's an amazing device. And I love this guy, Garrett. He is always coming up with new, incredible little contraptions 
thinking up different ways to stash whatever you're smoking on. So if you're a stoner like me, maybe you have a friend, a loved one who you'd like to get a gift for, use the promo code CRAZY at checkout and save 15% off. We love our sponsors. You can find them in the episode description or just go to The Hit Kit on Instagram or hitkit.us, wherever you use the internet. So with that, folks, thank you so much for being here. Sign up on Patreon to hear every episode early, Substack as well. And uh, until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. And like a hundred years, we went saw upon before guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you could stick with your own ways. But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. Keep your blood soaked heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy Good morning in the net feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for a military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, and ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got kids talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy. Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Baby, baby, baby. My family thinks I'm crazy. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Just maybe. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. And if it dies, but it's all kind of hazy. I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pap thinks I'm on the marriage, and it's shady. I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You can tell me that the president's an atheist. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? 
Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.